Okay, let's see here. Test, test, test. Test, test, test. I don't know. Sound like it's working. I don't know whether it's working. Is this working? Can y'all hear me? Anybody hear me? No? Okay. later okay well welcome to the craziness as if we don't have enough craziness in the world as it is right all right so we're going to get ourselves going here sorry for the little bit of the delay 
between telling the stories about almost hitting a hog Monday night on Highway 143 and trying to get the sound going, we're running a little late tonight. So at any rate, uh, thanks for being here. And uh, so let's go ahead and jump in. Um, did I close somebody up in there? Okay. Oh. She's probably... Okay. I keep closing that door. She keeps opening that door. Okay. Husbands, love your wives, says Christ, love the church, and don't close the door on her, right? Okay. Sorry, kiddo. All right, so uh, if you'll get your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're going to pick up in the next pericope uh, in this series of of narratives about David. And just to kind of give you the the heads up and the background, um, David, Jonathan has told David that Saul is trying to kill him, right? And um, he's given him the official sign, shooting the arrows, and David has left uh, the court. Left, he's left Jerusalem. And he's now um, a fugitive in the nation of Israel. Saul has put a bounty on David's head, so to speak. And, and so David is on the run. So there is this sense of fear, as we saw last time, in David that has moved David to not really make some good decisions. And we're going to start with that tonight, that that ungodly fear that we see in David drives us to make some really bad decisions, because David makes a whopper this week in this next narrative. And um, But the reason why we're coming at this particular text in that direction is because David is afraid. And, and you might say, well, who would blame him? You got the king of Israel after you. Okay, I got it. But how David responds to that circumstance is very much on David. And right now, we saw last week and then this week, that David is not really responding well. And, um, and so I've entitled uh, the, our time tonight, Enough Already, okay? And, and it's born out of 1 Samuel 21, 15, where the king of Gath says, don't I have enough craziness in my kingdom already, right? He actually says, do I lack madmen? But there's this idea that we got enough confusion in the world as it is without doing what we'll see David did. And, and I think it is, before I read it, this is, I'm going to give you just some introductory comments. It's astounding to me that there is nothing new under the sun. There are, you know, there are a lot of fo- there are folks in our world. Let's put it that way. There are folks in our world who say it's not their fault, right? It's as old as the garden, you know? Not my fault, somebody made me do it. Not my fault, my upbringing made me do it. Not my fault, all this stuff that happened to me in my past, you know? It's not my fault, I have some degree of, of mental illness. And there are folks that do, okay? All right, now I'm, I'm going I'm to be clear here. There are people who have a genuine diagnosis of mental illness. There are some, some degree of something not right. Not, I'm not talking about behavior 
or emotionally. I'm talking about in their the physiological working of their brain. There is something not right, okay? So, you know, there are crazy people in the world, right? There are crazy people in the world. But I've come across an awful lot of people who self-identify as crazy. And they're not. It's just an excuse. Now, if I, from the outset, have hurt somebody's feelings, I am deeply sorry. That is not my intent. I am not trying to put everybody into the same category. I am not trying to paint with a broad brush. I'm just saying that in our text tonight, we see somebody who is completely within their right faculties pretending to be crazy to escape responsibility. And that's the point. We got, as Christians, we can't do that. We can't do that. We cannot pretend to be something we're not. We can't self-identify with something that gives us a pass. We're not allowed to do that. So, anyhow, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 to 15. <clears throat> and it would help if I got on the right text. I'm sorry. Okay, here we go. So you probably have something in your Bible that says something like, David flees to Gath. <laughs> now remember, David just left the, the temple, the, the um, community, where he picked up Goliath's sword, right? He didn't have a sword, didn't have a spear. He asked the priest, last week we were together, do you have anything? Do you have any armaments? Do you have any swords? Do you have any spears? And the priest said, yeah, I got Goliath's sword. And I guess if there's anybody in Israel who deserves to have it, it's you. So David, okay, David has now left that location with Goliath's sword, and where does he go? He goes to Goliath's hometown. That's almost like busting up into Tuscaloosa with an LSU t-shirt on. Or going down to Baton Rouge with an Alabama t-shirt on. Or going to either one of them with a Texas t-shirt on because neither one of them like me, right? Okay? Yeah, it just wasn't a smart thing to do. And so that's where we're at in verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul as, after he got the sword, and he went uh, to um, Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. Oh, by the way, who was Saul and David striking down when they sang that song? The Philistines. <laughs> okay. Not thinking clearly, David. Verse 12, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, and he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let the spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us, and we praise you for your goodness to us, for your grace, for your kindness. Father, And we just ask that as we look at this text tonight, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us, and that, Father, we would uh, realize that we are called by your word 
to take responsibility. So help us, Father, in our weakness to be obedient to what you've commanded us to do, that we might be um, messengers of order and rightness and goodness and those things that are wholesome, not adding to the confusion and the um, rebellion that we already see in the world. So, Father, we, we ask for your grace in this moment that we might see and see rightly and that we might honor you as we hear from your word tonight. We love you, Father. We praise you. We thank you. And we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so the subtle downgrade of worldliness is so imperceptible that we must stop acting like we don't know what we're doing and take responsibility for our actions. Okay? We, we, we got to stop with the excuses. Now, before, I get, I'm, not, I'm not talking to anybody, okay? This is just the text. This is what the text is saying. So if you think I'm singling you out, I'm not, all right? I ain't got a clue what your thought process are, what you're thinking, okay? I'm just telling you this is what the text is. And so I think we would all agree that there are times when we don't want to face the consequences of our actions and we pretend like we didn't know any better. Right? You ever done that? I know I have. Well, I didn't know that. Or, or you know, the old famous Urkel. Did I do that? Yes, you did. And you're responsible. Right? <clears throat> I, was, I was just, why this is important. I was having a conversation with my friend Matt Cortman here a couple weeks ago. And he was asking me, you know, about all of the wokeness and all of the, um, you know, the racial division and, and all the stuff that's going on in our society. And he said, who, who can f speak to this? And I said, well, it really ought to be the church speaking against all this stuff. But unfortunately, the church has lost its authority to do so. Because we have just as much corruption within the church, the, the institutional church, and we have just as, mu as many people who are trying to skirt responsibility, leaders of the church and church in general, that we've lost our ability, the church has lost its ability to speak to those matters that really mean something in our society. And so I told him, I said, I just don't think the Lord has prepared the church yet. I think the Lord is, is preparing the church. I think the Lord is winnowing out uh, the true church and the false church. And he's preparing his bride, his church, to really speak to these issues. But part of that is, is we've got to start taking responsibility. And if it's the church that has been the one that has, in its, in its tacit silent, silence over the years, allowed certain things to become normal in our society, then we've got to say, well, the buck stops with us. We're not going to be tacitly silent anymore. If this is what God says about a particular issue, we need to say, thus says the Lord. Right? We need to stand up and take responsibility, and we need to take responsibility in our own lives, in our own deportment, in the things that we do day in and day out. Right? And uh, we, we need to really honor God in the things that we do. Well, that's the, kind of the backdrop behind the four things I want to talk about tonight in this message. And the first one, the first of the four is this, and it kind of is the bridge between last week and then this week, and that is ungodly fear drives us to make really poor decisions. Uh, if we look at David's life in the, the, our exposition of the first nine verses last week in chapter 21, you'll notice that David makes a lot of bad decisions. He continues to make bad decisions. And, and 
you know, David could almost do a Capital One commercial, right? It's the worst decision in the history of decisions, even worse than this, right? Going to Gath with Goliath's sword in hand and being the champion of Israel over the Philistines, he goes to Gath. What in the world would ever drive him to go into the enemy's quarters? Well, he's trying to get out of Israel. Because as far as he knows, Saul has a, a bounty on his head that anybody in the nation of Israel who sees him um, has gotten the stamp of approval to kill him. It's open season on David, right? Oh, but wait a minute. Hang on here a second. I just remembered. There was this little thing that happened not long ago for David that Samuel went and anointed him as king over Israel. Wait a minute. Okay. So he's got God's promise that he's going to be king over Israel. And not just a promise, but that he's been actually been anointed king of Israel. Right? And yet he's afraid that Saul is going to kill him. Well, how is Saul going to kill him if he's been anointed by God as king over Israel? So either Saul is out of place in what he's trying to do, or David is out of place and distrusting God in what God has promised. So that's starting to sound a little more like it hits close to home for us. I know it does for me. We've got God's promises. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. doesn't mean life's going to be easy, okay? God never told us life was going to be easy, but God said, I'm always going to be with you. My spirit is indwelling you. That's how you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit with you. You have, you have the paraclete. You have the helper. You have the one in the Holy Spirit and the Son interceding in the throne room of God, the Father, on behalf of people just like you. And so we're still afraid. And sometimes we make bad decisions like going and seeking asylum with the enemy in the hope that we get away from the king. And in this case, in our case, we're not running to the nation of the Philistines. We are running it back into the world. We are seeking asylum in the world because we're afraid that the world is going to destroy us. But we have the promises of God that if we speak the truth and live the truth and example the truth, that we'll be salt and light in the world. Doesn't mean we're going to be king of the world, right? But we've got God's promises, don't we? Don't we? Sure we do. And we forget them. And we do it because we're afraid. Now, again, I just want to highlight this. And, I, again, I've been, so, I've been so appreciative of John Flavel on this. Flavel is real quick to say that there is a natural fear. I mean, and we talked about that last week with some detail with logging trucks. Um, logging trucks last, last week, hogs in the highway this week, okay? So there's always something in the road. Um, there, there is real fear. And that's natural. God gave that to us. But when we begin to distrust God because of our fear, then it becomes ungodly fear. And, uh, you know, our thinking is skewed, our perceptive perception is skewed, we see the worst in things, we minimize the best in things, we forget about promises, 
And we just think that everybody's out to get us and things are going to fall apart, and then we make really poor decisions too. Right? Romans chapter 6, verses 20 and 22. Paul reminds us here, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. All right, so what Paul means there is what, before we were saved, when we were in our lost condition, we were slaves to uh, sin, we didn't know what righteousness was, right? If you can think back to the time before you became a Christian, you weren't concerned about righteousness, were you? You're, you're, just, you're concerned about doing what you wanted to do. And as a lost person, what you wanted to do was sin, right? I don't, you dress it up with morality, but it was sin. And that's what Paul's saying. When you were lost, you were, you were more worried about fulfilling your lustful desires than you were living in righteousness. In verse 21, he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from those things which you're now ashamed? So in Christ, as Christ opens our hearts, opens our mind to the things of the world and all of their manifestations, we see them for the shallow, empty, hollow, non-fulfilling things that they really are, right? But we, we're, we are a bass that has figured out that that bright, shiny thing floating around in the water has got hooks in it, right? And in a sense, you know, we've lived with sin in our lives as lost and then as the redeemed, still fighting some of those besetting sins. Some of us haven't quite got all those treble hooks out yet, right? We've bitten that bait, so that temptation. We've fallen for that temptation so many times that we're still trying to cut the hooks out. And once you get one of those hooks out, why would you ever want to go back to having a hook in your mouth? Right? That's kind of what Paul is saying. But what fruit were you getting then out of that sinful lifestyle that you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. The end of ungodly fear is death, okay? When we are responding with an ungodly fear, it is not going to work out well. Um, you know, when we are so afraid of circumstances that we begin to medicate our pain with certain, whether it be organic substances, whether it be with food, whether it be with activities, whether it be vicariously living through our children, or through somebody else, that, that doesn't promote health, does it? Um, an illicit drug addiction is not a healthy thing, is it? An illicit relationship addiction is not a very healthy thing either, right? The worry that comes about when we're trying to live through somebody else isn't a healthy thing. And those are just some of the things in our society that are driven by fear. The, the, the being overwhelmed. I can't just seem to get past this kind of idea. And, and look, the Scripture tells us the answer, that the end of those things is death, okay? But here, verse 22, the good news, but now, listen, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. And not just eternal life, but life now. So, you know, if, I, uh, if I've been medicating my fear with some sort of illicit drugs, and God saves me, and I now begin <coughs> to see 
that really the fear never went away with my, my drugs. I mean, I'm trying to medicate it, but they never went away. And when the fear, you know, I'd feel good for a while, but when, when, I, when it came back, when the fear came back, it came back worse than it was the first time, right? You know, modern, modern medicine, and I think there's a degree that this is true. I'm not denying it, but modern medicine says that for the addict, they have to have more and more and more of it because their bodies build up a tolerance to that particular substance and so that you know what they used to take doesn't really do it for them anymore so they have to take more or they have to find something else okay but you see modern medicine i think misses the spiritual component of that and that is when that fear comes back and that pain comes back you medicate it it's gone for a while you forget about it when it comes back it comes back worse than it did the first time so part of that needing to have a bigger hit is that you got a bigger pain the spiritual pain okay and when I wake up and realize in Christ that, that the answer is not the substance that alleviates the pain, it's dealing with the fear that caused the pain to begin with, then I don't need all that other stuff, right? If, if I am walking in the sanctification process that Paul is mentioning here, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, what God is doing in our lives where we're responding to ungodly situations with obedience and not just becoming afraid of it, then we, we grow in our understanding of what's happening in the world and what's happening in our life and what's happening in our past history, right? So you see, we, we have to take every thought and make it captive to Christ. You follow me? Not just some of them, not just the present ones, not, not just the ones that I'm dealing with right now, but what about those ones that I've dealt with my whole life and I don't want to really deal with them, so I've, I've suppressed them, I've pushed them away, I've, I've ignored them, I've tried to medicate them away, I've done all kinds of stuff. We have to take those thoughts captive too. Right? Because if we don't, listen, if we don't, then fear is going to come about, right? Hadn't it before? And that's an ungodly fear. It's not a healthy fear. It's an ungodly fear. And that ungodly fear causes us to make poor decisions, to seek healing and solace and strength and from somewhere else other than God, which is exactly what David was doing, right? He went to the king of Gath to find solace, safety, safe haven, security, asylum, whatever you want to call it. And he's running. How's he going to be king of Israel if he's hanging out in Gath? That ain't going to work very good. And I promise you, by God's grace, he didn't fall into this. But if the king of Gath had been paying attention, he would have kept David and used him as a trophy. All right? Mm. Isn't that what Satan does? Don't think for a minute that Satan doesn't try to parade God's children in front of him as trophies. Yeah, you think your grace is good enough, but look at what your kids are doing. Right? Poor decisions. Well, secondly, our poor decisions will be exposed and we will be found out. Okay? So, um, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 11. The servants of Achish said to the king, Is not this David... 
the king of the land, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is ten thousands. You, you know, he, David wasn't going to get to live anonymously in Gath. It, it just wasn't going to happen. He was too well known. He had done too much. He had caused um, the Philistines great grief and anxiety. <laughs> he wasn't going to get away with it. But, you know, we're not going to get away with it either, right? When we go and enter into some degree of a friendly relationship with the world because we're afraid, that unholy relationship is going to be exposed. You can't hide it, okay? If nothing else... As a Christian, if we go and seek solace in the world or, or we seek solace or comfort in worldly things or we are trying to, to solve our problems with worldly means, we're going to start thinking like the world. Right? Think about that for a second. Think about the people that you kind of hang out with most frequently. Now, you may, you may start spending time with people because you have some degree of common interest, but the more you hang out with them, the more you become like them. Sadly, in this relationship of Christians hanging out in the world, the world doesn't become like Christians. The Christians become like the world. There's a downgrade effect, Right? And so, if nothing else, as we're seeking solace in the world, as we have gone to Gath with the champion's sword in our hand and the songs that being sung that we've killed 10,000, there is no way we're going to hide. We can't hide. We will be exposed as we do that. Okay? Now, that's a little bit of bad news, but there's some really good news that follows that here in just a second. Okay? But I want us to understand that we can't hide. Um, in Numbers 32, 23... We find Moses speaking these words, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Okay? Now that's picked up by allusion by a couple New Testament authors, but not direct quote, but allusion. They make kind of make reference to it. Well, what's going on in Numbers that Moses would say that? Okay, well, you remember that in the history of Israel, they came out of Egypt, right? They, they, they sacked Egypt without, without anybody picking up a sword, right? You go back and you read that account, the exodus of Egypt. The Egyptians just wanted the Hebrews gone. So they gave them stuff. Here, here's some gold. Leave. Here's some clothes. Leave. Here's some food. Leave. Here, whatever it takes, we'll give it to you. Just get out of here. We're tired of y'all being here, right? Uh, a, a high water mark, Right? I mean, man, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good, right? Right? Well, that D-Now weekend didn't last very long. As soon as the sugar wore off and they had to go to school that next Monday, they started grumbling. Well, the kids did, but then the Israelites did too in the analogy. Try to make sure I'm being clear here, Right? They got off out in the middle of the wilderness, and we don't have anything to eat. We don't have anything to drink. It's too cold. It's too dark. It's too hot. The sun's too bright. 
<laughs> and God took care of them at every point, right? Red Sea, I mean, they're looking at the fishes swimming around on dry ground, right? Oh, by the way, advertisement here. Tomorrow is the gala for uh, Scripture Through Many Eyes over at the Biedenhorn Bible Museum. I'll tell you right now, my favorite piece in that whole exhibit is not mine. That favorite, my favorite piece in that whole exhibit is a painting done by a friend of ours. Don't tell them. It's, re it's related to the Red Sea crossing. Well, I wasn't going to say that. You need to go see it. Because I tell you, it's my favorite painting. In the, uh, it's a painting. It's my favorite piece in the whole exhibit. Right? So, point being, man, I wish I could tell you because this is a great illustration. I'll have to tell you next week after you've seen it. They saw God do just miraculous things, right? Then they come to Kadesh Barnea, which they really shouldn't have gone in to spy out the land anyway. That was a bad decision, but they did. Ten of them came back, can't do it. Two of them came back, said, well, it's a problem, but we can do it because God promised us, right? And so God judged them for 40 years. They wandered around in the wilderness, walking around the same mountain again and again and again, like they wore out cattle tracks around that mountain for 40 years. And at the end of 40 years, God starts to take them into the promised land, okay? So here we are. We're back. We're here to Numbers uh, 32. Um, as they're starting to go into the promised land, two of the tribes said, um, we don't want to go in. We like it just fine out here. Reuben and... Gad, I believe it was, if I remember correctly. I know it was Reuben. I think the other one was Gad. It was two of the tribes. Huh? Of Manasseh? Uh-huh, right. They said, hey, this land over here is really good for raising cows, and I'm telling you, we're all into cows. Man, we got cows everywhere. We're cow people, right? And this land out here, outside the promised land, <coughs> is really good for cows. <laughs> so you mean to tell me that the land that God promised you inside the promised land is somehow not good for cows? But they made such a stink about it that Moses said, I'm not excited about this idea. Number one, I think it's disobedience because God has told us that he's given us the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Yeah. Oh, where does milk come from? Cows. Hello. Not a good idea, guys. And I'm really worried that when we get over in the promised land that you guys are going to be so happy with your little parcel out here that you're not going to come fight with us. So you're going to make all your other brothers have to struggle in the conquest of the land while you're sitting out here on holiday. And they said, you know, Moses, we think you got a good point. This is what we'll do. Give us this land out here. We'll begin to settle it. We'll leave some people out here. We'll leave wives and kids out here, and we'll start building some stuff. And then when you go to war, we promise all of our fighting men will come and fight with you. And Moses said, okay. But if you will not do this, this is verse 23, behold, you have sinned against the Lord primarily because you haven't trusted what he promised to give you, and you want something else. Hmm, we want God has promised to give us 
the best and we really want something else because we can have it now. Hmm, does that sound familiar? This is sin, in this case, with um, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Moses said, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, this is sin, and be sure that sin will find you out. So we're not, we're not any different. We follow the same pattern. We do the same things. We want the same type of immediate gratification. Again, at times we find solace and we form um, covenants and agreements with the world to try to get an approximation of what God has promised, but it's not really what God promised. It's a, it's, a, it's a worldly substitute, but we can get it now as opposed to doing the hard work and finding the really good stuff that God has for us, right? And that sin will find us out. So when we make poor decisions based out of ungodly fear, they're going to come to light, Okay? I would hope that that by itself would be a preventative, right? Okay, Here, here's one of these experiments that I've done the last several weeks that seem to be working out pretty well. Don't answer out loud, but I want you to get square in your mind right now. The one thing that you could do that would bring shame on you Bring shame on your family, shame on your wife or your husband, shame on your church, shame on everybody. The one thing you could do that would just be the most shameful thing you could ever think of, right? Now, don't tell me. <laughs> don't tell me. All right, everybody got something in mind? All right. Now I'm going to tell you, if you do that, you're going to get be found out, and it's fixing to be plastered all over the papers. Are you willing to do it? Or is there a hesitancy? Right? Now, there's this, there's this sense of, man, well, I really, yeah, I'd really want to do that. It brings shame to everybody, but if I'm getting found out, uh-uh, no way. I'm not doing it. Right? So our sin being found out, that, that making an allegiance with the world, finding solace in the world, trusting the wisdom of the world more than we trust the wisdom of God and his word, is going to be found out. So shouldn't we say, well, I really don't want to do that. I don't want to get found out. Right? And that we would live <clears throat> in obedience as much as we possibly can so that we not shame or dishonor the name of Christ or our family or our spouses or our church or anybody else, right? And that we not respond to those circumstances and those things around us with an ungodly fear. Number three, here's the good news. Number two is the not so good news. Number three is the good news. Every point of exposure, our sin finding us out, is an opportunity for us to take responsibility for our poor decision and repent of it. That's not earth-shattering. That's pretty straightforward. But you see, I think sometimes we're afraid of what people are going to think about us. Right? 
And instead of taking responsibility and repenting and saying, look, I made a really stupid decision. That, I mean, that was bad. Taking responsibility, we're afraid of what people might think of us. So we begin to feign ignorance. Well, I didn't know. Or we, we act in such a way as to excuse our behavior. We blame shift. Not my fault, it was so-and-so. Or we begin to, as I mentioned earlier, we self-identify as being crazy to somehow try to get an excuse. Give us an excuse. Well, it's not his fault. He, he's, he was temporarily insane. Okay? Now, there is such a thing as temporary insanity, but it's not as common as you would think. Why am I saying this? Verse 12. 1 Samuel 21, verse 12. And David took these words to heart. He heard what the people of Gath were saying. It's kind of one of those things he kind of begins to hide the sword in his cloak, you know, where they can't see it anymore. But I'm not sure how you hide a sword that big, because it was a big one, right? He understood that he was in trouble, because they remembered who he was. He's the giant slayer. He's the Goliath slayer. He is the one who has... Whether he's actually killed 10,000 or not, he's perceived to have killed 10,000. He's not going to get much favor in Gath. And he, and he wakes up and goes, oops, <laughs> that was a bad decision, right? But what does he do? Well, David took the words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, well, he really ought to have been more afraid of God than he was the king of Gath, but so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in, the hand, in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see, this man is mad. Why have you brought him to see me? Why have you brought him to me? David self-identified as being crazy. I mean, I'm not trying to be ugly, but that's what he did. Is he crazy? No. The, the, the text itself says he pretended to be insane. All right? He pretended. He self-identified as having a condition he didn't have. But he must have been pretty good at it because he convinced a lot of them that he was out of his mind. Maybe they were thinking that he was out of his mind because who in their right mind would kill Goliath and then go to his hometown? That, that doesn't make much sense, right? Now, I don't know what would have happened if David had just taken responsibility and said, yeah, here's the sword. I killed him. Would God have saved him? I Probably. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. The text is giving us a profile of a good guy, a good man, King, of Dave, King David, Right, who's going to be king. He's got the promises. He's a man after God's own heart. Right? He was chosen to be king <coughs> because he wasn't the strongest. He wasn't the best. He wasn't the oldest. He was the youngest. He was a youth. But he, but he had a sense of purity and holiness about him. That's why he was chosen. And now he's, letting his, he's let his position kind of run away with him because he was chief of the, he was commander of the armies. His relationships to run away with him because he married Saul's daughter. His allegiance is kind of running away with him because Jonathan, the king's son, is his best friend. 
and he's forgotten what God has promised him. And he's afraid. He's afraid. He's, he's jumping at shadows. He's afraid of Saul. He's afraid of the king of Gath. He's afraid that people are going to recognize him. He's afraid of all kinds of stuff. And if nothing else, waking up like the prodigal and saying, coming to a census and going, look, I'd be a lot better off trusting God. He pretends to be something he's not. Right? As I interact with folks, I, I make room in my evaluation that there might actually be a true condition. Okay? I think we have to start there. As, as we're counseling, as we're helping, as we're doing all that. We have, we have to at least start with an understanding that there might truly be something wrong, physiologically. Okay? But anecdotally, experientially, experience-wise, it's rare. It's rare. There are folks who, who do, but it's rare. Or it's not as common as what we might think. Let me, let me, I'll soften that a little bit. Okay? It's not as common as we think. And really, the difficult thing with it is, is that there are a lot of people who believe they have something that they don't. Because somebody who's supposed to know better has told them they've got something they don't. And it makes it extremely hard to try to work through these things biblically when the person you're talking to is saying things like, well, I can't really do that because I have this condition. It's hard. You've got to kind of break through that at first and, and help them to see that really the condition that they think they have is not really the condition at all. They're self-identifying as having a condition. The, the real root of it is, is they're, how they're responding or their lack of response properly to the things that they've experienced. They're not taking responsibility. Okay? And there are all kinds of people around who want to help them learn how to take responsibility for those things that are really causing a lot of problems. Right? Now, I'm, I'm, say, I'm, not, this is, I'm not saying this. If there was an evil perpetrated against you, against you at some point in time in your life, you're not responsible for somebody doing something to you. Okay? How you respond to what somebody did to you is your responsibility. Okay? Does that make sense? And so if you say over a number of years, I'm just not going to deal with this circumstance in my life, whatever happened to me, whatever it was, and I'm going to believe what somebody else who's not using a biblical basis, a secu they're using a worldly basis to tell me something about myself, I'm going to believe what they say which is born out of worldly wisdom as opposed to taking God's wisdom and taking responsibility for those things that I'm supposed to take responsibility for. I'd rather live in a worldly thinking rather than godly thinking. Then that is a problem. That is a problem. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our world who just don't know that. They've never heard that. 
You know, somebody told them they were something, they've self-identified as something for all these years, and nobody's ever told them, no, wait, wait a minute, hang on, let's just kind of unpack that. They, they've never heard anybody tell them that they have to take responsibility. And it is a, it's a bitter pill when, you, when somebody finally tells you, look, I understand, but I, I think the root of the issue is you're not taking responsibility. You... you the initial event may not be part of your poor decision-making, but what you did in the wake of that is. And there have been some not-so-great decisions, some poor decisions that you've made over the years related to these things that have happened that if you really want to kind of be rid of this, then it's take responsibility and, and repent of those things that you know you're not doing right. And what I mean by repent is don't just keep doing the same old, same old thing again and dress it up with some kind of Christian label. Stop doing what you're doing and really seek God's direction and how to gain freedom in this. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? Not, not just sort of new. Completely new. And look, we have to learn how to walk in that newness, that alien righteousness. Y'all heard me talk about alien righteousness before? When God imputes that righteousness to us, Luther called it alien righteousness. It wasn't a, uh, it's, a nat it's not a natural righteousness. It's not one that we know. It's not one that we're used to. We have to learn how to walk in it, right? But as we walk in that righteousness, healing is one of the fruits. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Writer of Hebrews says to the, to the people, to the audience he's writing to, who were coming out of Judaism into Christianity, and then there were a lot of people in their lives telling them, what are you doing? You've been Jewish your whole life. I mean, like your dad and your mom were Jewish and your granddaddy and your grandmom and your great-granddad and your great-grandmom and your great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather and your, the great-great-grandfathers before them. We've always been Jewish. We don't know anything else but being Jewish. What are you doing? And they were, they were pressuring them to come back to Judaism, right? That's the whole book of Hebrews. That's why angels are better, Moses is better, the law is better, Melchizedek's better, Jesus is definitely better than all of that, right? And you hear that again and again and again. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Don't go back to the old thing. Well, in chapter 3, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews says this, do, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He's talking about Kadesh Barnea. That's what the writer of Hebrews is making reference to. That on that day when the spies came back, 10 of them said we can't. Two of them said it's going to be hard, but we can. That was the day of testing. Push pause for a second. Do you think that the spies going into the promised land and finding all these, yes, the, the clusters of grapes and the pomegranates and the bananas and the kiwi and the, I don't know, mangoes or whatever, you know, banana, you pick your favorite fruit, it was there and there was a lot of it, okay? But there were giants in the land too. Do you think that was an accident? Do you think that the 12 spies just happened to trip upon a city that had really big people in it? 
I think in some respects we kind of assume that all of the people in the promised land were big giants, and they might have been, I don't know. But whether they were or whether they weren't, weren't, the 12 spies saw the biggest people in the land, and granted, their perceptions, they made them a little bigger than what they actually were in their, in their minds. Do you think that was by accident? They just happened upon this town with these big people in it. Not a chance. It was a test. Okay, newsflash. God will test you. God will test you. He will. So that's what I'm saying. These times when we're exposed are opportunities for us to repent and, and to admit, take responsibility for our poor decision-making process. It's a, it, it's a test. God is bringing this to you so that you can repent. <laughs> You've got a glorious opportunity to glorify God in your life by doing it his way, right? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He put, he put uh, I'm play, push play, where your fathers put me to the test. I saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, verse 10, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, there's a sense in which if we refuse to take responsibility and refuse to repent, then we don't have salvation. Okay? Now, that's not me saying that. That's the scripture saying that, Right? So let me just give us an illustration for our understanding. We have a, I don't know, we, we have a, a hypothetical person in the church, a member of Grace Covenant, hypothetically. There is no person like this, so I'm not thinking of anybody. If, it, if this illustration somehow sounds very similar to what your personal experience is, it is a coincidence, okay? All right? No animals were harmed in the filming of this movie, and I am not thinking of anybody in particular. This is Mr. Christian hypothetical out there. I'm going to try to make him the worst that I can possibly make him. So we've got a member of our church who's a professing Christian who is found in, I don't know, adultery. All right? And we would all agree that's bad. That is not biblical living. We don't have to go pray about it to find out, is him cheating on his wife something that's against God? <laughs> no, it's against God. All right? And so we do what the Bible tells us. The person who knows about it goes to Mr. Christian and says, hey, brother, you know, this adultery, this, this is against God, it's against his church, it's against his word, it's against your profession. You know, and he goes, and he tries to reason with him, tries to reason with him. That doesn't work. A couple others go. They try to reason with him, try to reason with him. That doesn't work. It goes to the church. The church prays for him, reasons with him, tries to show him the right way. And at every point, he refuses to repent. Right? What is the church commanded to do at that point? Hmm? Yeah. Shun him. Remove him. No, more, no longer part of the church. Why? Because he had the problem of adultery? Is that why we removed him? Why did we, we remove him? Sam, you were answering. What did he not do? Yeah, he refused to repent. 
Right? And we all agree with that. We agree that's the right thing to do because he refuses to repent. We've tried everything that we know individually, small group, church, elders, counseling, podcast, meeting with him. I mean, everything we can think of. And it's not that he's struggling with this area of his life. It's that he refuses to repent. Right? So why is that any different of any other area of life where God's word says this is how we're to respond, this is what we're to do, this is what we're supposed to look like, this is how we're to react, and we dig in our heels and just refuse to repent over that issue. Is it any different? Now, don't hear me say this. I'm not, look, I'm not about to start sending out excommunication letters to everybody in the room. That's not my point. I mean, we all could be run out of the church for something. But in our lives where we're so used to having an allegiance with the world, following worldly wisdom, doing worldly things related to whatever the problem is, and refusing to go to the Word of God, which we all say is sufficient, we all say is authoritative, we all say is um, applicable, clear, instead of going to the Word that we, in many other cases, claim the sufficiency of Scripture, in this particular one, we don't rely on the sufficiency of Scripture. We rely upon our allegiance with the world. We're like David, who's in Gath, trying to hide from King Saul by running to the enemy, and we're listening to the enemy more than we're listening to what God tells us. And so we've made a really poor decision. And that poor decision has now been found out. And it's an opportunity for us to say, you know what, for a long time in my life, I have followed the world as opposed to following Christ in this area of my life. Now I may be following Christ in a bunch of other areas, and okay, all right. But in this one particular area that I'm struggling in, I've really kind of followed the world more than I've followed Christ. And you know what? I'm not going to self-identify as being insane. I'm not going to blame shift and say it's somebody else's fault. I'm going to take responsibility for it, and I'm going to repent. Please help me. Right? That is the heart that Israel didn't have. <clears throat> that the writer of Hebrews says, don't harden your heart. They dug their heels in. They said, I'm not doing it. I am who I am. That's who God made me to be, which is not true. I can't change. I've done this for so long. I'm so used to it. I'm so invested. I'm not going to do it. And God said, if you have that attitude, if you harden your heart, you're not going to enter my rest. So there is a salvation issue that I think it is hard for Christians. It's hard. For, I'm not going to say that it's hard I'm not saying that I question our salvation because we're unwilling to repent on a particular issue, but it is hard for us as professing Christians to live with unrepentance in our life. Right? Would you agree with that? So in a sense, when we're hard-hearted and not repenting over this particular issue, and we're more in alignment with the world than we are with God, we don't have rest. We don't enter God's rest. The issue never goes away whatever the issue is. It never goes away. 
It just is constant. It nags. It gnaws. It's there. You have no rest over that. In our allegiance with the world, trying to find solace for that, whatever that issue is, the world is not qualified to give us rest either. It's amazing to me that worldly thinking has convinced everybody, you can't be healed from that, you just got to learn to deal with it. No. There is healing in the gospel. There is healing in the scriptures. Now, sometimes the old vestiges that have built up over years takes a long time to heal. And there are times that we've been in those old vestiges for so long that though we have repented of it, we've turned to Christ, we may not be able to be completely free from the ramifications or the consequences of it. But we're no longer in bondage to it. The Scripture gives us freedom from the bondage of the things of the world, right? Right? And so these are opportunities for us to repent, to take responsibility and repent of these decisions that we've made. Nobody made us do it. Flip Wilson was completely wrong. The devil didn't make you do it. You did it. So take ownership of it. The verse four, I mean verse four, number four, my time's gone. <clears throat> when we fail to take responsibility, we add to the already copious amount of confusion in the world. Copious amount of confusion in the world. Would, would y'all agree that the world is a confusing place? The fog of battle, the scenery is obscured. Either they pop smoke to obscure what's going on or there's natural fog or maybe you just got brain fog. The, the world we live in, it is hard to see clearly what's going on. I think that's why Jesus said that as believers, we are a light on a lampstand or a city set on a hill. A landmark that people can navigate by. A light that people can see through the fog of what's going on and understand what's happening. Is there any reason, I mean, is it, is it any surprise to us that Psalm 19 tells us that your word is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path, Right? And it's another one of the Psalms. I don't think it's in 119, but I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? All you VBS folk. I mean, I learned that in VBS, and it's stuck with me my whole life. That's not an advertisement for VBS. That's more an advertisement for the word, but at any rate. It's just amazing to me that the gospel gives light. The gospel is a fixed landmark, like a city. That doesn't move. It's not here today and over there tomorrow. It's always there. People know it's always there, and they navigate by it. Right? There's enough confusion in the world. The church is called to be the light in the world. Right? To be able to help people draw clear distinctions between what is worldly, what is worldly and what is godly. What pleases Christ, what doesn't. But when we don't take responsibility for our poor choices and our bad decisions, we add to the confusion that's already there. Samuel, 1 Samuel 21, 15, 
I, I think the king of Gath, his response is just, <laughs> look, I got enough crazy people. Whether they're crazy or they're acting crazy, I got enough of these kind of people in my kingdom as it is. Well, yeah, they're lo he's lost. He's a Gentile, right? He's the world. That, that is a representative, at least in my discussion tonight, of the world. Did you know, just, just try this one on for size. Did you know that if you go to the world and self-identify as being crazy, that they're not going to confront you? Right? The world's not going to go, no, you're not. The world's going to say, come on in. We got, a, we got somebody for you to talk to. And we got a whole host of pharmaceuticals that you can take that'll help you with your problem. Right? The scriptures, however, when you self-identify as being crazy, the Bible goes, no, that's not crazy. That's just, you're not taking responsibility. I'm not saying for genuine physiological conditions, those are, that's like having heart disease, right? Or high blood pressure or diabetes, okay? It's a real condition. There are things that have to be done for it. I got it. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about self-identifying as whatever, fill in the blank. As Christians, when we do that, that adds to the confusion. So somebody who is genuinely struggling with an issue in their life, an addiction, what would ever move them to go to the church to find help if the folks in the church are self-identifying as this, that, or the other? Would you? Why would I go to Christ when the people who supposedly follow in Christ are eating up with some of the worst stuff I've ever seen? And by the way, they ain't really got it. The world knows it. They see it. Oh, you don't want, you're, Dude, you're self-identifying. You're not really that. You're not really this. That's not really your problem. That's not why you're having all of the, these different things. <laughs> Come on. So at times the world says, be honest. <coughs> right? Folks in the world. And we need to. We need to be honest. We need to take responsibility. We need to turn from the worldly things and turn to Christ. I wish David would have turned to Christ at this juncture of the narrative. He doesn't quite yet. He's getting there. He's not quite the man that God created him to be. He's getting there. He's still trying to do it the worldly way. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 have a word for David and for us both, okay? Because we're just like David at times. Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensua sensuality, passions, and then there are several other things that he mentions that I just let them lay by the side because I'm making a point here. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, uh, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All right. I left off the back half of the list because I don't want you to get all hung up on the orgies and drinking parties and that kind of stuff and miss the point, okay? Peter is saying that the time past, our following the world in its philosophy and in its wisdom and its accounting and its explanation of what's going on within the human person, our time of doing that in the past is more than enough. Okay? Stop it. Stop it. That's what Peter says. Stop. With respect to this, are you, um, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. <laughs> the Bible is not well received in the secular world. Right? Y'all know that? The Bible is not well received in the secular world. Dave Ramsey is laughed at by a lot of financial so-called so -called gurus because he follows biblical principles, principles applied to money. When we begin to talk about <coughs> God's prescription for marriage and what marriage actually is, the world scoffs at that. So much so that the world has come up with this thing we call civil union. Looks like marriage, sounds like marriage, but it's not marriage. By the way, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, looks like a duck, don't count on it being a duck. Right? And you can follow that line of thinking, the world scoffing at biblical principle, in whatever area you want to apply it to. It certainly is true in the area where we're trying to help people solve their problems, gain victory over those things that beset them using biblical principles in, in the Scripture. The world doesn't accept that. They find it to be voodoo, myth, some kind of supernatural magic. Well, it's supernatural, all right. It's not magic, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But why are we surprised when we don't join them? Right? Why, why are we surprised that they respond to us the way they do when we don't join them? That they malign us and they, they look at you and go, dude, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How, how could that ever solve your problem? It happens all the time. Peter says, they'll give an account. Don't forget. Every person will stand before God and give an account. Those in the church, those in the world, everybody. You'll have to answer to God. They'll have to answer to God. We'll have to answer to God. Paul says, for that's why the gospel was preached, even to those who were lost, so that though they... they are judged as men are in that they die. They die physically. They're not judged as God is who lives, that they're not subject to the second death. They're not subject to spiritual death because they're being spiritually, made spiritually alive. You see what I'm saying? Look, enough already. 
let's quit playing games. Let's quit trying to avoid responsibility. Let's quit making excuses. Let's do what God's told us to do in every area of life. Is it going to be hard? Uh-huh. <clears throat> Some things are going to be harder than others. You're eating a half gallon of Blue Bell Rocky Road ice cream every night before you go to bed can be remedied pretty easily. I'm just going to, you know, Nancy Reagan had it right. Don't do it. Right? Don't do it. I know. And if you've eaten a half gallon of Blue Bell ice cream every night for the last 40 years, I mean, yeah, it is tough. I got it. It's hard. Okay? Some things are hard. Some things are not. Some things you're going to feel like, I'm going to die. Probably not. Okay? And if you do, you'll be at home with the Lord. Right? And there's help. There's help. The church is a body of people who love one another, care about one another, who confront one another, and help one another. And if the church is not helping, then you might think about not going to that church. Right? But realize the church is made up of people, sinners saved by grace. We make mistakes too. But we have to be patient, we have to be kind, we have to be loving, but we really, we want to help each other. We want to. We want to see the body strong. We want to see Christians strong. We want to see each other walking in the light of the gospel, pleasing Christ, not pleasing ourselves, pleasing Christ. And I think it's about time that we start living that way. I know I need to. I've spent a long time not doing it. I've spent a long time just saying, well, that's not my gifting. I've spent a long time saying, well, really, that's somebody else. Isn't there somebody more qualified than me to handle this? I've spent a lot of time, frankly, just turning a blind eye and going on with it. And back at the end of last year, I came under pretty staunch conviction that I can't just put it off anymore. The scriptures have the answers. I believe that. I try to live by that. So, okay, enough already. Yes, I got it. Let's pray, and then um, we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. For the day that you've given to us, we continue to praise you for your goodness to us, your mercy and your grace. And we just ask, Father, that as we reflect on all that you've shown us tonight, that, that you would give us wisdom, that you give us insight, that we would not just run to, from one extreme to the other, but that, Father, we truly seek your counsel, seek your word, seek your wisdom in every area of life, and that we not have ungodly fear that makes us make bad decisions but we'd realize that there's nothing that can harm us apart from your divine will. And that, Father, we're secure in your love for us and that you have given us the answers. And so, Lord, may we not run to Gath to try to find the answers, but, Lord, may we run to you. Take responsibility, repent of our bad decisions, and be salt and light, not confusion. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We glorify you. And we ask these things in your precious and holy name.
Amen.